from the Heidelberg Catechism. We read together Lord's Day 31. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and closed? By the preaching of the gospel. According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits. As often as they, by true faith, accept the promise of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments, and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in recent years, heaven has become a popular topic. The media has interacted with the question of whether or not heaven is real. One McLean's article was titled, Why So Many People, Including Scientists, Suddenly Believe in an Afterlife. Much of this article was focused on near-death experiences. There are many people who claim to have died and entered into the afterlife. When brought back from death, they claim to have experienced a peak into the next world. They speak of tunnels of light, of seeing angels, and of encountering God. It's impossible to discount the stories people tell about their near-death experiences. Yet we can be skeptical when unbelievers speak about experiencing God and his blessings. The Bible teaches that the blessings of eternal life do not apply to those who do not believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. It's striking that many in our society who believe in heaven do not believe in hell. There seems to be this idea that pretty much everyone will enjoy a wonderful life after death. We know that's simply not true. Lord's Day 31 deals with the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the keys by which heaven is opened and closed. We know that after his resurrection, Christ went up into heaven. Since Christ is no longer living among us here in this world, he has entrusted 
the keys to entering heaven to his church. The church is mandated to preach the gospel and to exercise discipline. For it's by these means that heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. As you can see, beloved, we deal with weighty matters this afternoon. God sent his dearly loved son into this world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yet how are people to believe in the only Savior? And once someone believes, what is there to prevent that person from falling into temptation and sinning and straying from the faith? How is it possible for you or me to face death without fear? How can we make it to heaven? I preach to you God's word under the following theme. Heaven is opened and closed to us by the keys of the kingdom. Heaven is opened and closed by the preaching of the gospel, and it's closed and opened by church discipline. In Lord's Day 31, we speak about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We all know that a key is a tool. It unlocks or it locks a door. By means of keys, a door is open to us or closed to us. Keys are used to give access or bar access to whatever lies behind that door. Now we need to remember that in our Lord's Day, we're not speaking about a physical door. We're speaking about the keys to the kingdom of heaven. After suffering and dying for us, Christ went up into heaven. He went ahead of us to prepare a way so that one day we could join him there. Christ is the one who holds the keys to open or close the way for access to heaven. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus told his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The book of Revelation makes it clear that Christ has obtained the keys to God's kingdom. In Revelation 1, 18, Christ says, I have the keys of death and Hades. And in Revelation 3, verse 7, Christ makes it clear that he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. The point that Christ is making is that he has been given authority from God to open the kingdom of heaven to those who believe in him and to shut it to those who don't. Christ has given this power to his church in Matthew 16, 19, he said to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. From John 20, verse 23, we see that this authority has been given to all of Jesus' disciples. After granting them the Holy Spirit, he said to them, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Thus we see that the keys of the kingdom of heaven are to be administered by the church. The first key that our catechism speaks about is the preaching of the holy gospel. How does the preaching of the gospel serve as a key? How does it open heaven to all who believe and close it to those who don't believe? To understand this, we need to realize that God uses the preaching of the gospel as a tool. 
Paul writes in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God uses the preaching of the gospel to draw his children into a relationship with him, to allow them to share in the blessings of the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. To help understand this better, it's good for us to look at the gospel as the prophet Isaiah proclaimed it. Isaiah 55 begins with an urgent invitation. The Lord is speaking. He does so in figurative language. He presents himself as a water seller and a food supplier. In ancient Israel, they did not have indoor plumbing as we do today. Any water you wanted to use in your home had to be carried from a well or a pool. And so we have the image of a water seller walking through the streets with a water pot on his head, loudly offering his supply for sale. The invitation goes out, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. The invitation is also extended to come buy bread. Also wine and milk are mentioned. It's a call to share in the supply of life-giving food and drink. The call is to come buy food and drink. Yet it soon becomes clear that this life-giving fare is not actually for sale. The speaker is not a merchant interested in making money. Instead, he invites people to a banquet of salvation that they may share in without cost. Through Isaiah, the Lord calls out, Come, you who have no money. Come, buy, without money and without price. All that is needed is that people come and take the Lord offers to them. Salvation is offered as a gift of grace. All you need to do is to come and eat and drink, to take hold of it by faith. You're allowed to share in the greatest gift imaginable at no cost to yourself. In Isaiah, the Lord offers this wondrous salvation to his covenant people. Isaiah speaks of how this gift will be given through the king who would arise in David's line. Jesus Christ did come to offer salvation as a free gift of grace. In John 4, we see the Lord Jesus offering living water to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in Sychar. He said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so we see that the call of the gospel goes out. The call to salvation is not just for God's covenant people Israel. It's for everyone who hears it. Isaiah said, come everyone who thirsts. We believe that the gospel should be spread universally to all peoples everywhere. Christ commanded the apostles to go make disciples of all nations. The church has been commissioned to preach the gospel indiscriminately to anyone and everyone who will listen. 
So how can we partake in the wondrous feast that the Lord offers us? How can we share in the abundant life he promises? Isaiah makes that clear in verses in chapters 55, verses 6 and 7. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. To share in the blessings of salvation, we simply need to repent and believe. In Lord's Day 31, the Catechism makes it clear that the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits, as often as they, by true faith, accept the promise of the gospel. And so we see the urgency of Isaiah's call to come. We see how necessary it is to respond to Jesus' call issued in Mark 1.15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Beloved, you are privileged to hear the gospel proclaimed to you twice each Lord's Day. To hear the glad tidings of salvation that Jesus Christ has come into this world to offer his body and blood on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. Do you believe that? Does the gospel do anything for you? Does it touch your heart in any way? Or do you daydream while the sermon's delivered or take time to catch up on your sleep? We're accustomed to attending church and to hearing the gospel. And so it's something that we so easily can take for granted. Yet God's word has the power to bring radical change into people's lives. To make the point, Isaiah uses an example from nature. He talks about precipitation and about the water cycle. God releases water from the clouds in the form of rain. It waters the earth, causing plants to bud and to grow. Excess water will evaporate from the surface of the earth to again form new clouds. The point is that God uses the water cycle to cause plants to grow and develop and bear fruit. God sends rain to provide food for mankind. Well, says Isaiah, in the same way, God sends forth his word. The Lord says that just as a water cycle provides food for mankind, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. God uses his word to make himself and all his mighty deeds known. He works that word into the hearts of his people by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. Do you know why the preaching of the gospel is so important, beloved? Because it's the means by which the Spirit changes us. By nature, we are self-focused, self-seeking, self-absorbed people. 
For many, life is about doing what I want to make me happy. In and of ourselves, God will never be the focus of our lives. Our sinful nature would never incite us to seek God or learn to know Him. Of ourselves, we would not devote our hearts and lives to Christ or live to God's glory. By nature, we're inclined to hate God and our neighbor. Yet the Spirit changes us. He causes us to be born again. He transforms our lives. He takes that which was spiritually dead and he makes it alive. He works repentance and faith in our hearts. He renews us, more and more putting to death in us the sinful desires of the flesh. He works in us a love for God, a desire to live for him. God takes our self-absorbed, self-seeking nature And he transforms us so that our focus is not on what we want. The Spirit changes us from the inside out so that more and more we will love God and our neighbor. Can you see how important it is to come to church regularly and faithfully? The writer of Hebrews encourages us not to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but rather to encourage each other And all the more as we see the day approaching. It's easy for us to presume that because we've grown up in Christian families or attend a Christian church, that all is well with us. Yet to share in the blessings of salvation, you need to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. God brings us to faith. God keeps us in the faith by regular exposure to the good news of what Christ has done for us. There are people who may have heard the gospel preached for many years who will not share the blessings of salvation. If you don't believe the gospel, if it doesn't touch your life, if it doesn't provoke a response from you, then it will serve to shut the kingdom of heaven to you. Our catechism says the kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. This echoes what the Bible teaches. In John 3, verse 18, Jesus said, Whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In John 3, 36, he said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Through his messengers, the Lord Jesus, the Good Shepherd, speaks. We're called to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd speaking to us to earnestly hear the appeal to come to him, to believe in him, to share the life he offers. If you reject Christ and his word, you will not be allowed into heaven. The blessings of salvation will be denied you on the final day. We see that your life, beloved, is at stake. Repent. 
and believe that you may share in communion with God now and eternally. This brings us to our second point, and it will see how heaven is closed and opened by church discipline. When we hear that word discipline, we often view this negatively. We might think of children getting punished or someone getting told off. But the word discipline comes from a word that means to instruct or to teach. We see it in, the for, in a related word, to disciple. Before he went up into heaven, Jesus commanded the apostles to make disciples of all nations. A disciple is someone who learns to follow his or her master. So discipline is not a negative process. Its intent is to call straying members to repentance, that they may share in the abundant life Christ offers. There is no substantial difference between the preaching of the gospel and church discipline. Both use the word of God to call people to repent and believe. God's word is the norm. It is the standard that must be used. What is different is the way in which it is applied. The gospel is publicly proclaimed to the whole congregation. In contrast, discipline is applied privately to the specific life of one of the members. As such, you can tailor the message specifically to the life of the member who is straying. The goal is to call the straying member to repentance, that he or she may share in the life that only Christ can give. While the preaching of the gospel is a task that has been given particularly to the minister of the word, discipline is the task of the whole church. Our catechism summarizes what Jesus taught about discipline in Matthew 18. It says that according to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. Who should be doing that admonition? The minister? The elders? We'd like that, wouldn't we? But it's not what the Bible teaches. Matthew 18 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That means, beloved, that if you're aware of wrong doctrine or an unchristian lifestyle in the life of your brother or sister, it's your responsibility to approach him or her and speak to them about their sin. Not to tell him or her what you think, but to open your Bible and let God's word speak to his or her life. Not in a spirit of pride, as if you are so much better, but in humility, recognizing that but for the grace of God, it could be you stuck in that sin. Gently, you need to warn and admonish, calling your fellow brother or sister to repentance. Your goal should be to restore the one who has fallen. 
The Apostle Paul makes clear how we are to deal with those who live disorderly lives in 2 Thessalonians 3. The situation was one where some of the members believed that Jesus' return would happen very soon. They felt it was a waste of time to work hard if Jesus was coming back shortly. Yeah, there were some problems with that. They took on an attitude that they were much more spiritual than those who continued to work. And since they didn't work, they needed their hard-working brothers and sisters to support them. Since they were idle, they became busybodies, poking their noses into other people's affairs. Paul issued several commands to the congregation with respect to how to deal with these sitting members of the flock. He told them to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. One reason for keeping away from those who are living in sin is so that we may not be tempted to sin in like manner. Our lifestyle can and does have an effect on those we associate with. If you're always around people who swear, you'll be tempted to swear as well. If you're always surrounded by people who party, you'll be tempted to join in. There's also a second reason for keeping away from a sinning brother. Paul wrote, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. If you make it clear to a brother or sister that you value your friendship with him or her, but refuse to be around them when they're sinning, they may learn to see that what they're doing is wrong and be ashamed of it. It could lead to your brother or sister's repentance. Yet in all this, we are not to shun fellow members of the church. Paul writes, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. A fellow member of the church who's living a sinful life should not be viewed as an enemy. He or she is a straying member of the flock. Do you remember what Jesus taught us to do about a straying sheep? Jesus left behind the 99 sheep to seek after the one who was straying. In the same way, our task is to call those who are straying to repentance, that they may remain part of Christ's flock. It's to warn our brother that if he persists in his sins, he will no longer be able to share in the blessings of Christ. It's to call him to repentance and life. Beloved, when is the last time that you visited a straying brother or sister or wrote a letter to him or her? Have you ever done that? When the Lord confronted Cain with Abel's death, Cain asked, Am I my brother's keeper? At times it seems like we take on that attitude. It seems like there's a certain amount of reluctance for us to warn and admonish one another. We have members who stray from God's word and will. We have some who do not faithfully attend the worship services. Why don't we reach out to them in love and call them back to the Lord's service? We need to remember we're fellow members of one body, a people for whom 
Christ shed his blood on the cross. We have a responsibility to care for each other, to help each other along the pathway of everlasting life. That involves not just making a meal for a sick mom or helping out when one of our families is blessed with a newborn baby. We're to hold one another accountable for how we walk, for how we talk, for how we do our work, for what we do with our leisure time, for how we live our lives. Brothers and sisters, when someone approaches you wanting to speak about something in your life, don't brush them off or give them a cold shoulder or tell them to mind their own business. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of love for someone to apply brotherly discipline. They may not always say everything perfectly, and they may have misunderstood you in some way. Yet listen and take heed to their call to repentance. If you've done wrong, admit it. Express your sorrow at your sin and make a commitment to live a better lifestyle. Thank the person who's expressed concern for you. Perhaps even invite them to stand next to you if you're facing struggles in life. Remember that the purpose of church discipline is to help each other share in the blessings of Christ so that all together we may inherit the crown of life that Christ has promised to those who love him so that the way to heaven may remain open for us. This afternoon we focused on the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is a popular topic in our society. We shouldn't be surprised at that. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into man's heart. With a graying population, it's understandable that there is increased interest in heaven. Many of the baby boomers are retiring. They are facing health difficulties. They are becoming aware of their own mortality. It makes sense that they're spending more time thinking about whether there is more to life than this life about whether heaven exists or not. Yet the real point is not whether heaven exists. The question people should be asking is, how can we get there? Heaven is not for everyone. The kingdom of heaven is closed to many, for they do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. They stand condemned. God's wrath remains on them unless they repent and believe. The same applies to each and every one of us. Heaven is opened and closed to us by the keys of the kingdom, by the preaching of the gospel and church discipline. That's why we need to exercise these keys. Beloved, do you attend church diligently and faithfully? As often as you can? Rested and ready to focus on the words that the Good Shepherd is speaking to you? You should. 
For it's through the preaching of the gospel that God calls us into a relationship with him and that he keeps us living close to him. Do you watch out for your brothers and sisters, encouraging and admonishing one another as you travel through life? Warning when you see someone backsliding? You need to. For it's the means by which Christ brings back those who are straying. The goal is that we all may one day be admitted to heaven, that we may share in the joy and the glory Christ has earned for us. Amen. Let's respond by rising and singing together hymn 44, stanzas 2, 3, and 4. <clears throat> 